the YBF podcast and it's your girl Natasha and I'm back with another YBF politics episode and y'all know the deal it's you know infusing our favorite thing entertainment pop culture as well as politics so this episode is part of the YBF politics vertical and I have a very special guest you all know we have candidates on we have sitting politicians as well as candidates that are running for uh, positions in Congress or vice president or president or local <laughs> local politicians and every every position you can think of. But we also love to talk to activists and people that are on the ground doing the work that we talk about the politicians putting into play. So today I have someone that I know personally, and I think that it's just so amazing that he is in the position he's in. It makes perfect sense. As, well, as long as I've known him. It makes perfect sense for what he's doing now. He's on the ground in Louisville, Kentucky, and we all know the drama going down there. So it's a lot to talk about. We want to get firsthand information about what's happening there, what we can do as a people to help out. And just we just want firsthand info. We want to get into it. And with someone who is obviously an expert in everything that we're about to talk about. So please welcome to the show, Chief Engagement Officer for, for the Louisville Urban League, Mr. Lyndon Pryor. Awesome, thank Hello. you. Hello. <laughs> thank you for having me on. And before we get started, let me just make sure I say congratulations to you on all the success, just <laughs> YBF. And then I knew at some point she was gonna come back to your roots with this politics vertical. <laughs> Um, we were waiting on it for a while. So, mm -hmm. so glad to see you doing all the things and yeah. leading out here as well as you do. So thank, thank you for you. having me. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> so Lyndon and I went to Texas A&M University together. Whoop. And um, we're actually going to talk about um, some college uh, football talk and SEC and stuff like that because there is an intersection there with yes. uh, social justice and college in college football and sports in general. So that's interesting. But it's interesting because me and him were both um, political science majors at a very conservative university. And I think that, I think back in college, you were a little bit more, I don't want to say the word militant. What's the word? Um, that's, that's what they call me. That's okay. A little bit more um, <laughs> like gung-ho about we're not waiting on y'all for change. We're about to do what we need to do. Like, mm -hmm. that was you. I was more like, well, let's learn about, like, how we can all come together and how we yeah. can do this and that. And now I'm like, no, nah, F this. We're about to do what we need to do. Like, you just get to that point, you know? Yes, so, you went inside. You was all student government. And yeah. Just talk to the people and make the friends. And they are yes. better than you think, Lyndon. Yeah. No, they're not. No, they're not. <laughs> I was definitely in student government, definitely like all about student government in every way possible. And I think it was a learning experience for sure. And it's definitely taught me a lot about how the world works, especially at such a conservative university like Texas A&M. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we were, I feel like our freshman year even, when we got to campus, there was like protest galore. There was always something we were protesting that had to do with racism. Mm -hmm. And I don't, if you all don't know out there about Texas A&M, the, the number of black students is minuscule. Minute. Like, I think it's more minuscule than Ivy League universities. Like, it's just, it's very, very small. And for a state school, that it doesn't make sense, but it is what it is. So that's something we were always cognizant of and trying to address, but trying to go against 
adults and people in power when we're just 18, 19 years old. We didn't always feel heard, but still felt heard in some ways. But we were on the ground protesting from like, I don't know, newspaper articles with cartoons that were depicting us as menstrual symbols. And I mean, it was just the craziest crap that we had to go through as freshmen in college. But I think it definitely prepared me for everything I'm seeing now. None of this surprises me everything that we're seeing. Um, and I think it surprises a lot of people, but it doesn't surprise people like me and you. And we were in classes where we will be not only the two black people in the class probably, out of like mm -hmm. 400, 500 students if it's an intro class, right. but the only like non-conservative people as well. So right. it was usually me and him against the world, y'all. Like, <laughs> like any, any debate, we're like, oh God, it's us again. And this was when, you know, Bush was president and yeah, it was a lot. So um, you tell me, how do you think your college experience impacted what you're doing now? I think to what you said, I think it really prepared you for the way the world works. Um, you know, we got to see at A&M a lot of things firsthand from the standpoint of just how blatantly racist it is. And that's, I mean, you know, you're from Louisiana, I'm from, I'm from Texas, so we kind of know the South and the South, you know, racism is everywhere, but the South is just kind of a little bit more in your face. Like the yeah. folks just tell you stuff. And so I think we were kind of used to it. Like there were some parts of it, but I think being just swimming in it the way we were at A&M and pain, uh, was, and pain to experience it too. You know, yeah. wishing to get right. you <laughs> Like it was one of those things where it's like, oh, wow. And you started to understand kind of like how it also, how it all is built, like the institutionalization of it, right? Like I think coming out of high school, I kind of saw racism as just like this, this group behavior or maybe individual behavior, right? Like I didn't really understand the systematic ways in which this thing worked. But being at, at A&M, like, you know, it's one thing you're hearing it from your students, but then it's another thing when you start hearing administrators and professors talk a certain way about you or talk about black students in a certain way. You start hearing community members or people in the system who talk about it that way. And it's just like, okay, wait, this is this is laid out yeah. in a very different way. Like, this is more than just, you know, a few bad people or a few bad apples or what this is. This is like an institutionalized thing where where this has been passed down historically like literally it is tradition you know and for those who understand a and m you understand that reference like it is tradition like and how we do this um which i think absolutely prepared me for the world because that is the way racism works out in society like it is not just these individual bad acts as we would you know as many in the media would love to make us believe like oh you know that's just one bad police officer or that's just one bad individual who did this or did that or whatever no this is this is systematic this is what we have been taught this is what is learned this is what is ingrained in us and i say us including black people because we pick up and participate in that stuff as much as anybody else does in many ways and so like it is ingrained in us um in in remarkable ways and i it was because of AM that i began to understand that um and have continued to grow an understanding of that since i left there yeah and you actually you were one of the founders or if not the founder God, my memory um, of like the it was Black Student Union, right? Basically, black yeah. yeah. We couldn't um, we couldn't call it that. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it 
They wouldn't, because again, because the institution wouldn't allow us to have a black student union. Right. Like, what do we call? What the Memorial call? Student Center is the student union, and therefore there can't be a black student union at the right. in, at the university. But I can't whatever. remember what we called it. But you were one of the founders of that and the president of that. Um, and I just thought it was it was just so crazy to me how how hard it was to even get something like that. But that should tell you guys, like he just said, everything is systemic. Everything is intentionally set up in a certain way to keep things as they are. Status quo is king everywhere, not just on college campuses, but in the United States of America, really in the world, but definitely here in America. So what do you feel you learned when it came to bucking the system? Like how do you apply things that you learned just growing up, especially in college as well, to your position um, where you are right now, how are you applying those things? How are you bucking the system now and getting people to buy in? So that's a really interesting question because I think I, I talk about that a lot now because um, I think in my role and what's happening here in Louisville and what's happening across the country, um, I have long held the belief uh, that it well, I now have long held the belief that it's a both end. So you reference like how I was in college and I was very much a um, you got to do it from the outside of the system. You yes. know, you can't dismantle the master's house with the master's tools type of thing like that. That kind of was my idea. Like we don't need them. Um, and little did I realize at the time that even in holding that position, I still got pulled into, um, that organization. It was AASC, African-American Student Coalition. Um, it got pulled into the very system. Um, and we kind of got co-opted in a way um, from doing the things that we wanted without even really realizing it. It took leaving college and going and get a master's degree and understanding higher education to figure out how that happened. Um, but I was, I very much had the, the opinion of like, everything has to happen from the outside. Like that's the way you're gonna destroy this system. Um, but now what I realize is that it's very much a both and sort of thing. Like you yeah. cannot, we are not gonna get free of this thing um, simply by bombarding it from the outside. Yeah. Um, and we certainly aren't gonna get free simply by being on the inside. It is going to take both. And the best example of that is what we are seeing happening now in the streets all across America, and particularly here in Louisville. Like, the little bit of movement that we've gotten, whether that be on Breonna Taylor's case or even on some other community actions that have happened recently here, um, have happened in large part, if not solely, because there are people in the streets every single day, right? Yes. Like there are people out there causing disruption, yep. making a scene, making noise um, peacefully, but they are inconveniencing people in ways that they are not used to. And it is right. that pressure, it is that political pressure, it is that public pressure that has broken the will in some places, not fully, but in some places of folks, of folks in power to right. start conceding that, hey, things have to change, we've got to move that. And so now you've got people who are on the inside or people um, like our organization, Urban League, which is not necessarily um leading things out on the ground but um certainly is supportive of that and oh, yeah. helping um move some of that work forward but we are certainly more so having conversations behind the scenes and working with government officials and others and, and um, corporate leaders and companies um to be able to move tangible things forward right. um 
those folks in the street allow our job to be that much easier when we're having those conversations so that we can then get hold of resources, get hold of opportunities and funnel that back to our communities. And so it's very much a both and um, approach. And that is something that very much coming out of, of college that I have learned. That's been the lesson. And that was for the brief time that I was working with college students. That was the game that I tried to put them up on was like, look, y'all trying to do everything inside the system because I had a lot of students who wanted to be, you know, like, let's, let's go ask for permission to protest or <laughs> let's go work with student government. I was like, that's all well and good. But if y'all don't have something on the outside, something that they are not actively in control of, because they control all of that. Yeah. And so they are dictating all your moves in that realm. But if y'all aren't doing something on the outside, something that is utilizing your free, your free movement, your free voice over here, you're not going to be successful. You've got to do them both. You've got to put them both together in right. order to get traction. And so I'm glad to see at our alma mater that there has been some movement. Yeah. Um, we'll see <laughs> how far they like, get. It's like, oh, we've been there before. I'll, oh, yeah, I get my hopes up. Yeah, <laughs> I can't get my hopes up, but I'm, yeah. I'm glad to see that there are some folks who are moving on that. And, and I wish, you know, I wish there were more um, black former students who, who were lifting those kids up because they yeah. I mean, there are some folks down there who, who are fighting their tails off um, yeah. to see change happen. And so I, I, I need more of us um, to lend our voice to say, like, we support y'all and, and, and get it done. Like, yeah. let's, let's move. Yeah. Some former students have definitely reached out to me about, um, you know, talking to them about what we did, oh my God, I feel so old saying back in the day. I know, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I'm open to bed. Exactly. Um, I mean, it's literally been 20 years since I stepped 20 years. Oh my and God. we had some of the exact same fights yeah. that they had. It is crazy. Yeah, and they're like, well, what did y'all do? I was like, child, first of all, let me try to remember uh, freshman year, but everything that they're dealing with right now from crazy crap in the battalion, the school mm -hmm. newspaper, to even like just the, the city's newspaper as well, which is also a pretty big deal in a college town, um, to, you know, the Corps of Cadets doing things. The Corps of Cadets was allowed to fly Confederate flags while we were still on campus. I used to have to walk past that every single day to get to class, you know, like just all in your face, just Confederate mm -hmm. flags. And now there's that issue of people being, well, certain certain federal government officials demanding that there cannot be you know confederate flags in certain places and that was a huge uproar on anim's campus which is a very uh traditionally um rotc core army type school um i mean that's raising hell as well so and then the statues on campus of sully and and sully ross or whatever um and all these uh racial fi racist figures that have that have uh, statues on campus. And we were always trying to get um, a Henry Gaines statue and stuff like that. And to, to kind of combat the racist tropes that we would just see everywhere. Um, and the school would be like, I mean, just putting us through all the hoops, all mm -hmm. the hoops. And they're still putting them through all the hoops just to get that type of statue to salute a black man who actually, you know, created some great things in, in the deep south during that time. So it's like, I want to talk to him about it. But I'm also like, child, I don't, 
I don't think if it hasn't changed in 20 years, I'm really not sure what to tell y'all. But I mean, I love that you still have hope there that if they keep bucking the system, maybe it'll happen. I hear that they've raised money for this statue. I was like, didn't we raise the money for the statue? Like, I mean, they've been raising money for that for 40 years. They finally, right, right. supposedly, they finally got enough. Supposedly, they got enough. Allegedly. Allegedly. Okay, I think we had the money. I don't think the money was the issue. But okay, if that's what they told you. So yes, <laughs> it is important that we keep telling people to operate outside the system as well, because they will continue to give you the runaround. They're going mm -hmm. to continue to change the the end goal, you know, the the goalposts. They're going to keep mm -hmm. moving it every time you reach it. It's well, actually, we're not going to give you that because you need X Y Z now. Now, F it. Sometimes you just got to go in and take it. And mm -hmm. I really appreciate watching. You brought up the Breonna Taylor uh, protest. I really appreciate watching celebs, reality show celebs, but celebs, mm -hmm. um, and also some football players um, going to um, Kentucky and marching on the DA's lawn and. Um, and, you know, going to Mitch McConnell's house and I mean, just doing the most, you know, mm -hmm. and I think that that's amazing. Yes, they all got arrested and, you know, faced some felonies that thankfully got dropped. But mm -hmm. I think it's things like that that cause people to pay attention and it kind of puts pressure on the system to actually make a change. Why hasn't a change been made, though? What is your take? on what's going on with this Breonna Taylor situation and the cops not being arrested, not being, I mean, they've been fired, but you know, whatever, they can get hired in the next town over. So what's your take on this? Well, so I'll start there and say they have not been fired. We have oh, one, officer, fired. one officer oh, okay. been fired. So there are um, three officers who, who breached her apartment um, and who fired shots um, that killed her that night. One of them has been fired. Um, and he has a pretty um, uh, reckless history of different things. And he, I, I think it's safe to say his acts that night, based on reporting, were the most egregious. Yeah, um, supposedly sure. firing through a window that was closed and curtained and all that sort of stuff. So, not yelling at their cops. Right. And so it took a while for the mayor to fire him which was a problem, um, but he ultimately has been fired and I believe is in the process of, of, of appealing that decision. Um, but the other two um, have not, and that is a failure, uh, you know, for our mayor. And we have not been quiet about that in that, because um, we truly believe that while uh, the need to arrest and prosecute uh, the officers is essential, um, we, we've known pretty much since the beginning that that was not going to lie uh, here in the county, that that was going to be um, the state attorney general's per under his purview. And so that's on uh, Dan Cameron to do. And so that fight was going to continue regardless. However, had the mayor fired the three officers from jump, um, we probably would not have had the level of protests in this city. They still would have, they still may have happened in Frankfurt, which is the capital, um, or other places, but they probably would not have happened at that level in this city because there would not have been a need. And so the folks who are still protesting today, um, whether you're out there, you know, physically or those of us who are protesting in lots of other ways, really still are targeting the mayor in the fact that you have not done your job. Um, in firing these officers, and he has said that he doesn't believe that the other two officers um, have essentially done anything. So where do we go wrong. from here? If, if 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 the mayor, the person that is charged to do this, says mm, no, nope, doesn't need to be done, what's the next step of action? 
Well, so that's where we're looking to the attorney general. And so we're hoping that within the coming weeks, uh, we believe uh, before Labor Day, certainly, um, but probably within the next week and a half or so that he will release a finding um, and an indictment. And hopefully it will be for the three officers, because if he indicts, it doesn't matter if the mayor fired them or not. Um, right. they, they still are going to be arrested and tried and whatnot. Um, and so we are hoping and holding out belief that he um, is going to do his job. Um, and, and get indictments for, for all three officers. And so there is hope that ultimately, and that is the ultimate justice, right? Like that there is an arrest and a prosecution um, and a trial for all of that. And so we're, there is still hope that that is going to happen, but we are absolutely hammering home that, that the mayor has not done his job. And we don't feel like he needs to get a pass um, on this because, because the, the trick of that is, and you know, one of the names that has not necessarily made a whole lot of national attention is David McAtee, who was also killed here in Louisville following the protests um, around Breonna Taylor, was, pro was killed in an incident with the National Guard and our local police department um, over in the West End of Louisville, where there were not protests. Um, Louisville is a segregated city. The West End is where many of the Black folks reside. Oh, okay. Black folks were 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 having a, a, an outing. Um, David McAtee, a local a local restaurateur, was cooking. You yeah. know, things were going on for whatever reason. Um, LNPD was deployed um, all the way over there, literally eighteen blocks away from any other protests to go over there and break it up. Ended up, they started firing pepper bullets, um, which then prompted him to fire a weapon, ultimately resulting in his death. And so, like, you've got, you know, at least one person dead. We've also had another um, young man, Tyler Girth, who was killed um, down at Jefferson Square downtown. Um, he was killed by another individual, but during a protest. Um, so you've got one, two individuals who are dead, truly because, you, you know, of mishandling things after Breonna Taylor's death. Um, and that falls on the city, that falls on the mayor and his leadership or lack thereof. Um, and that just has to, that has to be said. Over when over. is the mayor's term over? Well, so he just got elected, what, last year? So he's got two more years. Um, they got three-year terms here. So he's, he's got oh. a little bit longer. And this will be the last. He, he won't be eligible after that. He will oh, okay. have termed out. Um, but he is, the mayor, he is the president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. Um, for which we at the Louisville Urban League have said, we don't feel like that's, that's appropriate. Like we, you can't be leading all of your peers in cities around the nation um, while all this shit is going on in your backyard. And particularly cause he, he will tout like, oh, we are talking about reparations at the U.S. Conference of Mayors. We're going to talk about police reform. And we're like, wait, huh? How you, how you going to do that? If y'all not going to lead police reform when you got all of this going on here, how are you going to talk about reparations when Louisville, Kentucky is the blueprint for redlining, um, which uh, for folks looking in who may not know, redlining is the practice used by the federal government to um, basically denote places in a city where banks and other investors should or should not put their money. And it was largely based on race. So places where black people were, banks shouldn't loan. Places where black people weren't, it's okay to loan. 
And so what that means is, you know, black folks can't get home loans, black folks can't get business loans, black folks can't get auto loans, insurance is high, all yeah, sorts of stuff. Exactly. All the types of things that go into what is the big deal, which is wealth building, all of those things are cut off when you have these types of policies in place. Louisville was literally the blueprint for that. And then they picked it up from Louisville and they went to places like Chicago and down south and all over the country with it once they figured out that it would work here. Um, but this city has never made amends for that. They've acknowledged it. They said like, yeah, it happened and it's a tragedy and all that sort of stuff, but we ain't got no reparations. The black folks here have gotten no type of redress for what has happened over the decades for that. So you can't be talking about you know, I'm going to lead the effort on reparations for the U.S. Conference of Mayors, and still here in your city, you've done nothing um, to to address what has happened as a result of these types of policies in your own city. So that's a huge issue um, for us. Is just starting with the mayor, um, but I can go on that. Yeah. <laughs> well, something that is um, that I've been talking to other activists about is um and it was brought up on this panel that i was speaking on and it's about candidate incubators and preparing candidates to run instead of just us kind of sitting on our hands and hoping that the democratic party or the republican party chooses the appropriate people to run um to me it's like we see what happened in colorado those people are democrats and they're allowing the foolishness to happen with elijah mcclain and what can we do if they are if those are the democratic people in office and they're not even treating they're not even doing what the democratic party stands for it's kind of like oh well then what do we do now that was the only candidate we had you know the key ran unopposed so what do you feel like um your organization or other people can do to push other people to people that they feel will be great for that position to push them to run and to kind of groom people to run for certain positions especially like the mayor of louisville um so we don't have to just sit by and let other people choose right so this is where i have to put out the disclaimer that the louisville urban league is a nonpartisan organization um, <laughs> so we you know, we are we are only for those who are for us whether you're yes. democrat republican independent whatever um and so that said, though, I mean, I think, and we, uh, being honest, we haven't, here in, in Louisville, we haven't done, um, we haven't waded into that water in terms of candidate preparation and making sure that candidates are ready. The National Urban League, particularly through their Washington Bureau, um, is doing some of that work. They've got some certificate programs to kind of train people on, like, how to get uh, engaged in policy work and understanding mm -hmm. it a little bit better. Um, but I think everybody could do better in terms of everybody yeah. in the movement could be a lot better in doing exactly what you just said, really prepping people to fill these spots and not just not just new blood, but also for the folks who are um, who are already there. Like what are what are those candidates who are in place doing to prepare folks to come in behind them right like what's auntie maxine doing right like who who is behind her maybe she has obviously i'm not in california so i'm hoping she's got a roster of folks who are ready to replace her um when the time comes to fill that spot and to keep pushing the same way but even for those new folks uh, whether it's um ilhan omar or uh, rashida talib or aoc or whoever like are they building up um, just kind of a stable of folks to be able to go out. And I know there are some initiatives that are doing this nationally yeah. that are working to build up progressive leaders, but it is so critically important um, because I think like going back to our college conversation, like I think that is 
that is the thing that we failed at, right? And not just us, but all the generations before us is that we had no succession plan, right? Like, so we had all these dynamic leaders who were doing these things and who started these issues, but we really did very little to prepare somebody to come behind us to actually continue the work, right? And so, and that is, and honestly, the system is designed to do that. Uh, particularly in higher education that's the way the system is built they just wait you out and say like oh, okay we'll just have the same conversation with the next yeah. group four years later yeah. and then you know it's just rinse and repeat um as far as the institution is concerned but we didn't do a great job of doing that and i think we have to look at that at the national state and local levels to say like all right how are we preparing people to go into these positions but then even once they're there how are you creating a bank of people who are ready to come in in different spots to be able to step in and lead and do this work. We're not always starting at square one. Exactly, continuing the work, right? Like that is the, the key part of this is how do you prepare people to come in and continue what you're doing so that they are not building from square one, but they are, they are literally standing on top of whatever foundation was there before them so that we can keep moving this thing forward. And so as much as we can support that, um, I know that is something that we want to do. I know that it's something that the National Urban League is supportive of. And like I said, I know there are organizations doing that work. Um, but yeah. yeah, we need it at every level, yes. um, in every state and municipality, because it's, it's going to be important because we can't do this without folks, um, you know, leading this work. Like as much as, you know, some folks keep talking about the revolution, like we, we're not trying to be the French over here. Like, we, you know, <laughs> like folks ain't got fat and comfortable. Like they not, they, <laughs> we not finna burn this whole thing down. <laughs> right. So I think we got to be realistic about the fact that a lot of the change that's going to happen is going to happen within the very system that we have. And if that's going to be the case, then folks got to be prepared to step in and lead within the context of those systems um, so that then they can change them. Um, let's talk about, it's such a big topic, but whatever. Let's talk about voter suppression, because if we're going to keep pushing for these candidates to get into office, I mean, pushing them to get there is one thing, but actually making sure they have a fair chance of getting in is a whole other. So mm -hmm. um, Kentucky, of course, had their primary that was much talked about. And um, the senatorial election, the senatorial race was quite interesting. Um, I mean, a lot of us were pulling for Charles Booker, of course, and he's one of the most vocal people going against Mitch McConnell and everybody else that is whack and trash in that state, you know? And it was just interesting to me that it was, actually it shouldn't have been that interesting that it was that close of a race, but whatever, here we are, it's America. Um, I do think it should have been a landslide or at least not as close as it was. And he still lost. So let's talk about why he lost and what we can do for the upcoming November general election. Um, he, of course, this was a Democratic primary that I'm talking about, and he had, I know at least, I mean, the winner, Amy, but I don't know how many other people were in the race. But it was just interesting to me that, I mean, I'm all the way over here in New Jersey. Everybody, everybody I know all over the country knew Charles Booker and was voting for Charles Booker, whether you were black, white, whatever. 
And it's just interesting to me that this woman came out of nowhere. And I understand that she's a, she's a military vet, right? Um, and, you know, she's probably an amazingly qualified person. But I never heard her speaking up against people like Mitch. I never heard it. So I, that's not somebody that I was hoping would get into office. Because believe it or not, I mean, as you all know, if you're watching this, just because you're the senator of one state does not mean you do not affect like literally everybody else in this country. So there's, we're all invested in who wins from every state. So it was disappointing to see that, that we want someone in office who's going to speak on our behalf, even over here in New Jersey. Like I want you to be doing what you're doing in Kentucky and forming bills that can still affect my life over here in Jersey. So it's sad to see that he didn't, you know, even get to the point that I feel like it was, I feel like it was stripped from him. And I feel like it was stripped because of voter suppression. So the day of election, and I, I didn't realize this, but they had, I, I realized it like a few days before, that they basically condensed all the polls into one for that one huge area for like over 600,000. Yeah, where we are, Jefferson County. For the one county, right. Mm -hmm. Which, Listen, I live in a, a, a small city outside of New York, and we had multiple polls, even in this COVID area, e uh, era, even while they were pushing for mail-in voting, we still had multiple in-person locations. So having one and saying, well, we told y'all to vote online, or we told y'all to vote by mail last week, it just seems very um, dismissive, and it seems very intentional. And then the people that were going to that one polling station I mean, the lines were out, out the parking lot, wrapped down the highway and all this stuff at seven o'clock when post closed. And it's like, what are we doing? So, and of course that was the district that was heavily, <clears throat> heavily progressive and heavily black. Mm -hmm. what, what, what are we doing about it? What, what, what can we do? Cause it's like, what, we, we had a great candidate but he didn't have a fair chance. So what do we do? So, so that is Jefferson County. That is where I, where I am, where we're located. And, and I can provide some context because I won't completely throw the state under the bus. All right, all right. Regard, right? So part of what happened um, was, well, a, couple, a few, few different things happened. Mm -hmm. In terms of Jefferson County, while they decided to condense to um, one, one of the official reasons is, is that due to fears of COVID, Mm -hmm. They um they lost a lot of poll volunteers. And so you you okay. go to elections and you know poll volunteers are usually our older citizens yeah. Yeah. <laughs> who are just doing the best they can. Yeah. And they said, No, no, we're not we're not doing this. So yeah. a lot of folks apparently said that they weren't. So that was gonna already con cause a whole lot of polling locations to be closed simply because they okay. just didn't have the volunteers. Now caveat to that is i don't know what push they made to get more volunteers who might have been willing about it. Right. but I, I i just i'm go that's what they said all right so understanding that they're gonna close it down and they use the expo center here in louisville one of the other things they did though was they opened up early voting um at the, at the uh election center and at even some uh, remote places, you could come and turn in your mail-in ballot. If you had one, you come do that in person um, for, for, I think it was three and a half weeks um, leading up to the election. Um, and so they felt, they, the Secretary of State and the governor felt like that in addition to everybody was eligible for mail-in voting was going to be sufficient to be able to ensure that folks were going to be able to vote and vote on time. Um, and so that those steps, I will say, were major steps for Kentucky.
because prior to that, there was no early voting. Um, and mail-in was only an option in very narrow circumstances or very narrow situations. You literally had to basically be out of the county on election day and be able to prove that and some other types of things. So like they had taken some massive steps forward in terms of opening up voting. However, they did not do that in really considering all of the things, all of the situations that folks may face. One, during early voting, the polls still closed early. Yeah. Um, and while it is policy that employers are supposed to allow their employees off um, to go vote, if you are somebody who lives on the other side of town and does not have transportation and has to get on the bus, how are you going to do that, right? Like, you, you're not going to be able to make that commute out to get your vote and get back to work in time. And so that's not necessarily an option for everybody. It doesn't feel like it is the best option. On the mail-in side, um, the process they had was real convoluted at, start, at the start. It was really convoluted, hard to understand, um, and just difficult. And then there were issues with the mail, so folks who had turned it in. So even in my house, um, I got my ballot, and even though uh, my partner and I, we both put our information in at the same time, she never got hers. And so, like, it's just mass confusion around how is this happening and what's supposed to happen, when is my ballot coming, and all of that sort of stuff. So there were some major glitches in the system yeah. that, again, led to um, what we would essentially say is effectively voter suppression. And then on election yeah. day, the polling place they had, which was large enough, more than large enough to accommodate the number of people that they have. But the issue is, is that there's huge amounts of construction around it. So that caused traffic delays. Um, you know, we had instances in which Lyft provided us with free rides for folks to go and get votes. It was great. But because just to get into the election center and drop people off, it was taking so much long because the way the lift ride worked is basically it's a voucher for a certain amount of time that should cover your ride. Mm -hmm. Well, the lift drivers started seeing that, oh no, this doesn't cover the duration of my time. It's taking way longer than that for me to drop people off. And so we had lift drivers who just weren't, who basically just shut off service and weren't picking people up, right? So again, all of these things go into this idea of like, how are you suppressing votes? And then for whatever reason, the polls were closed at six, which didn't make any sense because it's like, you already knew that you weren't going to, you had to count all these mail-in ballots. Right. And so it was going to be a week until afterwards. So you, you could have left the polls open until midnight. It really didn't matter. Like, it, why are you closing the polls early on election day when you know you're not going to have a count today and you won't have it for days for a, more than a week later? So all of those things happen. And so how do we fix it? Um, so there are a couple of things. Number one, we as Urban League, we sued the state. Um, <laughs> to basically say, look, we want mail-in voting for everybody. Um, that is still working its way through, but it doesn't look like we're going to get it for everybody, but we still should have pretty expanded voting. Um, well, before we, you go on, what is yeah. the difference? Can you explain the difference? I think it's a little different by state, you know, it shouldn't be, but what is the difference between the mail-in and the absentee? So, I mean, they're essentially the same ballot, but absentee ballot says is basically that it says you will be absent on election day therefore you need to submit your vote by mail mm -hmm. and so there are some conditions as to why you will need to be absent on election day um which in the past like i said was very very narrow what those things were um and so that has been a, so for the primary it was open to everybody like it, you didn't need a reason basically you just say COVID 19 and that was your reason um and then for the fall or for November, um, 
it's 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 going to be more narrow, but it's not going to be as narrow as it's as it's been in the past. And so there will be a lot more people who are able to get um, fill out a mail in ballot or absentee ballot. Okay. All right. And what else is being done? Yes. So we're suing the state um, and hoping for we we were pushing for all. Um, mail-in ballots for that to be the same case as it was for the primary. We probably won't get that, but we will get expanded mail-in balloting. Um, so that'll be a good thing. It looks like they will open more polling locations. I don't know what those polling locations will be, how many there will be, but it does sound like there will be more polling locations and it does sound like we're going to get um, uh, early voting again uh, for possibly as much as, as four weeks in advance. All really, really good things. What we want to push for within that, though, is going to be extended times. Um, I would like to see um, early voting on Saturdays, because that was the other thing. It was yeah. only Monday through Friday. Um, I would like to see early voting be available on Saturdays for folks to be able to do it. And then on Election Day, we definitely want to see um, extended polling hours, because we'll be in the same situation again. They're not going to know results um, on the day of the election. So just leave the polls open, let people get in yeah. there and go vote. Like, don't why, why are you going to put people under a gun um, to get in there no, and, and exercise their right? Like, it does that make any sense? So. No, well, do you think that, um, what's her last name, Amy, what's her last name? McGrath. McGrath, yes. Mm -hmm. Do we think that Amy McGrath can beat Mitch McConnell? So, again, Little Bourbon League's nonpartisan organization. Um, just, just okay. just it's just, so, just, so just me, it's going to be hard, right? And, and I'll say that in terms of the why for that is, um, so during the primary, I think you, you talked about, you know, not hearing from Amy early on and, and she was in the race well before Charles was. Charles actually got in the race pretty late. Yes. Um, but I, she had already kind of been aligned with what we would typically call the quote unquote establishment of the Democratic mm -hmm. Party. And their, um, their playbook for Kentucky uh, for a long time has just been like, be as center right as you possibly can to try and sway some of these, you know, um, Republican voters uh, over your way. Like that's that's kind of the way in which they have coached candidates um, for for a very long time, and certainly since I've been here, has been kind of their push. It's like if you just stay center, center right, then you know you there'll be some folks who who give you a look, and you may be able to siphon off enough votes. Um, but time after time, like Mitch McConnell, like crushes people, right? Like he just—it's not like he's just barely winning. Like he is out so here crazy. just killing folks um, yeah. when it comes to to the polls. And I think a lot of it has to do with a you get candidates who don't want to rock the vote um, or rock the boat. Excuse me, in terms of like coming out here and really connecting with yes. people and i think that was something that was very different about charles booker exactly. as he was running is like and not just for black people right like he went all over the state um and really made an authentic push about how um you know the hoods of louisville and lexington are no different than you know um the hollers as they call them out in eastern and western kentucky right like we have so much more that that binds us and that type of authentic message i think registered with lots and lots of people um and i think what i think you have in terms of what amy is ultimately going to fight again is that there's there's just been a big letdown 
I think yeah. for a lot of folks, people are just disaffected um, yeah. with the choices. And I mean, I think we can see this at the national level oh, as well, right? Like there are just a lot of folks who like, mm, you know, the people at the top of the ticket just aren't my favorite, right? Like there's no, right. no shade, it's just like, Right. Okay. No, no energy. They're not. Right. Yeah. It's just this ain't this ain't this ain't what this ain't what change looks like. Right. right. Like that's and that is. A valid uh, point. Yeah. And that's, you know, for a lot of folks in our generation, particularly a lot of black folks like that is what it is. And that is what we are seeing a lot of folks who are out here in the streets protesting is like, man, that ain't it. I ain't with it. Um, and so if, if we can't get those folks to turn out to vote and if those and if Amy can't convince those people to vote for her in particular, yeah, I, it's, it's going to be a real hard sell yeah. um, for, her, for her to do something with that. Because one of the things that I think folks miss on, particularly on Black people, like I think there's this assumption um, that, that Black people just vote against people, right? But the reality is, is that for most of us, we are trying to vote for something, right? Yes. Now, at the end of the day, like for a lot of us, we recognize that there is just a degree of necessity that like, all right, I got to vote for, you know, the yeah. devil, the, the lesser of two <laughs> evils, unfortunately, and we uh -huh. will do that. But, um, yeah, we really want to vote for somebody. And yeah. so we are looking for people to give us something to vote for exactly. as opposed to just simply giving us something to vote against exactly. and so and that's why i wanted booker in there i feel like he would have been the perfect energizer to actually i mean you're nonpartisan, but i'm i'm partisan <laughs> and to get mitch up out of there and we all know why if you don't go to at the ybf at ybf politics we explain the positions of senators um and and the role they play in the bs that we see happening so he's got to get the F ASAP. And I think that the one person that could have done that is the newcomer. Um, same thing that AOC is doing on the national level, same thing that Ayanna Presley is doing on the national level. Um, even the newcomer, Cori Bush, I think she's about to come in here and wreck shop on the national level. It takes, it takes energizers like that to buck the system. It's mm -hmm. cool to have Nancy Pelosi because she is the OG and cool to have Maxine Waters because they know the rules backwards and forwards and can flip it around and, and play everybody without anybody even noticing. But you also need that other component of somebody to buck the system. And I think that would be Booker, but here we are. So I don't know. Good luck to Amy and all. <laughs> oh no. Um, what do you feel about um did you see that that this is the last thing I'm gonna talk about with Mitch McConnell because I'm over it. But did you see that? Let me pull it up. Oh, okay. It was Kentucky people um outside of his office uh uh singing Mitch Better Have My Money, all about the they were mad about him protest mad about him blocking the stimulus the new stimulus package where people would have gotten money, you know? Um, I think it's hilarious. But what do you feel about what's happening when it comes to the stimulus package and how it's affecting the people there? I mean, it's criminal, right? Like, we out here playing with folks' money in ways <laughs> that... I mean, and, it, and it's... I mean, obviously, it's, it's stuff that we that's always happened. Mm -hmm. um, it's nothing new. But in this particular situation, when you compound it with what people are up against, right? Like you got a lot of states now um, that are starting to open up eviction court 
um, that are allowing their utility right. companies now to start turn off, um, turning off service and all that sort of stuff. So now you're really putting people up against, you know, homelessness, um, you know, against uh, food insecurity, lots of different things. Um, and so you out here, you know, playing politics with, with folks' livelihoods in ways in which that are far less subtle than I think they've ever been yes. before, right? Like usually it's kind of nuanced when we talk about tax cuts for, you know, the wealthy and those types of things. Hey, ways in which we, yeah, those those things which which obviously still take away from the folks who need it, but um, it's hard to see, right? Like it can be hard to pinpoint unless yes. you really understand what happened in the policy and whatnot. But this is very, very clear when the man says like, yeah, y'all just gonna stop getting these unemployment benefits or we gonna cut them by $400, right. which they were already only $600 to begin with. And then my rent is 780 a month. Like what, what, what are we talking about? What, 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 what you yeah. talking about, right? Like, how does that work? Right. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's truly, it's truly criminal that, that we would be playing with folks um folks livelihoods folks humanity um in this way because i mean it's not is it's not just grown people not that that would somehow makes it better but you're talking about families you're talking about kids yeah. we're now supposed to be you know trying to figure out how i'm gonna go to school online or in some places <laughs> go to school in person um but you know mom and daddy sitting at home because they've been laid off due to covid and can't you know can't afford to to make ends meet in real ways like the things that we are doing are like i've i've been saying to people in lots of different calls um like the generational effects that that oh, this time is yeah. going to have on us mm -hmm. right like the story is not going to be told i don't care if there's a vaccine tomorrow like the impact generationally when you talk about economics when you talk about wealth building when you talk about health wise when you talk about mental health and when you talk yeah. about education like the generational impact of covid 19 is going to be significant and so we really have to be paying attention to yeah. what is happening and start figuring out how we start to remedy some of these these things yeah. and i'm glad you brought that up about education i was actually just watching um, um a parent in california speak about the fact that the parent this is large group of parents that came together with a lawyer and is suing the california governor because they're upset that he's not allowing certain districts that have met a threshold or above of COVID infections to go back to in-person school. And now, as we know, California is a large ass state with a lot of people. And so, yeah, the district, when we say district, it, we're thinking a little bit smaller for them. That includes three, one district could be 3 million people. Mm -hmm. So to them, they feel like they're being kind of penalized if their side of town is damn near COVID free, but they can't send their kids back to school because their district is overall is above the threshold. So now the parents are stuck like Chuck, like what do they do? So I, I get it and I've, I've been telling, I don't have kids so I, don't, I can't really speak to it, but I tell all my friends with kids and my sister and um, you know, who's going through all of this. I'm like, honestly, because I see what, I see the hardship and I see like the, the stress and the impossibility. Because as a parent, I'm sure, like you, you're trying to find the right answer. Why would you not, you know? And mm -hmm. I'm trying to tell them, I don't think there's a right answer. I think that the position that this administration has put this country in is a rock and a hard place. There is no one right answer that's gonna solve things and make things better. You know, whether they stay home 100%, stay home only 50%, or go to school 100%, it doesn't matter. They're going to be affected negatively in some way shape or form so at this point it's just about 
managing the chaos and managing the, and doing the best you can do. But like you said, it's still going to have this effect because the mother that was talking was saying her kids are, have special needs. So she's already seen, this has only been four to five months. She's already seen the regression in her children because certain children with certain special needs, they're just not going to be able to flourish in an at-home environment. So she is put in a, in a place, like, what can she possibly do if the state is like, y'all ain't going back to school. Y'all don't care if there's no COVID in your, on your block. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I empathize, but I'm just like, I don't, I don't even know what to tell you. I get why you're suing the state, but I also know if we don't all sit the hell down, this will continue like this, nonstop. So mm -hmm. what, what, what do we do? Like what, and also do you feel like it's part of the urban leagues, um, I don't want to say role, but is there any way that they could help with certain, because we all know this is also a socioeconomics issue as well. Mm -hmm. So is there any way that the urban league and different divisions are helping certain people in certain socioeconomic states um, or situations that can't afford to send their kid to a pod and, you know, sit at home with their kid? Like, how are we helping people in a nine, in, a, in an impossible situation? Yeah, I mean, I think for our part, so we have a director of education policy and programs, Dr. Kishkumi Price, who's a rock star, um, who has been working with JCPS, our, our local school district, um, to do whatever she can to kind of advocate for like smart solutions, right? Like, and, and making sure that they are keeping at the forefront of their mind, like, this is not some one size fits all type of solution. Like, they, we are not. Um, this thing is very, very real um, in different ways for lots yeah. of people that is beyond like the physical health and well-being that is associated with this virus, right? And that's, and I think that's the thing that, you know, at least for a while was kind of lost on people is that, you know, for black communities in particular, like, yeah, the health, the health risks associated with COVID are, are real and that's significant, but uh, all these other risks, yeah. like the economic risks, the social risks, the educational risks, all those types of things, like that, like that, that yeah, I that is the bigger. Yeah, so you know, so for our part, like we have been pushing, um, we have been pushing the district and working with the district, and they and they've been fairly responsive um, in working with us, and, and we're we're glad to have their partnership to try to find you know as many solutions as possible. And so there they are. There is a community solution that's kind of a pods type of thing that is coming about here. Okay. And, and, and so there are some groups trying to put that together to figure out if they can make that work. And hopefully the district is going to, to support that, um, not just with financial resources, but hopefully um, provide some, some human resources to be able to make that um, work. But, you know, you're right. There aren't any really good solutions. And this is where like, you know, leadership just matters, right? On, on a whole host of fronts because, you know, back when for us, school basically, they, they came out of school back in mid-March, right? It would seem to me that at that point in time, and you know, that was a lot of districts across the nation, that at that time, that that would have been the time for folks to start figuring out like, okay, what does this look like long-term? That's what I said. And what do you need in order to get right, right? And so while we talk about stimulus and while we talk, because now is the time, only in the last month has the government federally and otherwise really been talking about stimulus to schools and education and that's simply just so they can get back right and right. it's like well, they're supposed to be over. 
That's why. Oh, it's going to be over in August. It's exactly, fine. right? Like, we're trying to figure out, you know, they're they out here trying to force stuff so that they can have football yeah. um, and silly yeah. stuff <laughs> like that. Whereas, like, had you, had you just had folks sitting around a table intentionally looking at, A, the rest of the world um, who had already done this and some of those schools who went back and looking to see, like, okay, how are they doing it? How does this work? What do you need? What are the types of resources? And then bringing all of those resources to bear um, in the name of, of education, like, we might have had a conversation. We might be able to have a conversation where kids who absolutely need to be in person could actually be in person right now in certain places. Because um, even in the places that they're doing it, like, as we saw in Georgia, like, they're doing it in ways that just don't seem particularly safe. Like, a whole bunch of kids in a hallway jam-packed on top of each other. Happens, yeah. <laughs> All kinds of stuff. So it's just like, had we really just been intentionally thinking about it, had you had the leadership to really exactly. be thinking about what this means um, long-term and what this could look like, what are the possibilities, what are the options, and how much does that cost? Because that's ultimately the big question. How much does that cost? We might be in a situation where this fall, all right, we could be managing this a lot differently, but we just, right. we, we lacked leadership. Foresight. From, yeah, for, for so many, from so many different levels that now everybody's just kind of under the gun and just continuing to make poor decisions, frankly. Like, everybody's just out there making bad decisions. They shut down that school that, you know, that they suspended the kid for taking a picture of the crazy right. hallway. Now they had to shut it down because, like, like, like 100, 200 students or something were infected. And it's like, really, y'all? Really? Yeah, like how, like, like that wasn't a surprise. Like, how did y'all, right. how did y'all not know that this is what was going to happen? Yeah. But, but again, like, we just, it, we are lacking leadership yeah. in real ways in lots of places. And folks who just seem to refuse to want to accept what science says, who seem to want to, who don't want to accept, um, you know, just kind of what is happening around the world. Yep. Um, as if, you know, as if they can make up results. Yep. Um, on their own <laughs> it's, it's just crazy. it's, it's well, really what are, what are you doing like your dad so how do you feel like what is what are, what can you do like how do you feel about this i know like at least one of your kids is school age i believe yep. so she's supposed to be starting kindergarten this year oh. um and she is going to do that uh virtually that is what our district is doing there oh, that should be fun <laughs> Like again, like what do you what does a kindergartner do on on right. a screen? Like it's just like so I, we have no idea, to be very honest yeah. with you. We have no idea what this is going to look like. And she's you know, she's brilliant, like she's smart and I'm sure she, and she's gonna be fine, sure. like in the long run. But but she also has the benefit of a whole host of privileges. Um, that, you know, a lot of kids don't have. Both of her parents are able and blessed to be able to work at home. Um, and so we're both there. And so even though we're working full time, which is in and of itself, like its own type of grind yeah. and strain to just be yeah. doing this all day, um, you know, having to be on Zoom calls all day, having to be yeah. on all kinds of different things all day. Um, that's taxing and that's stressful for her as well. And again, we've noticed that, that that is a stress on her not having our attention. Um, but, you know, but she's got, she's got tons of resources. She's also got a, a grandmother and two aunts who are who are educators and who have oh, taken time right. to, yeah. you know, to to pour into her in all kinds of different ways and they're sending us tips and resources and so like she's one of those kids who just has the benefit of privilege in some ways that we'll make it through this year okay 
Um, but every educator that I've talked to who's serious about it says like, there is no replacement for in-person learning, right? Absolutely. And so every student like is probably going to be taking some level of a step back, no matter how good um, their district is doing. And so we just have to really be thinking about, so again, like right now is the time that you have to think about like, okay, yeah. next summer or next fall, what do we do right like we have a whole bunch of students who did this whole remote thing and yes yeah, some of them might have learned some of them okay. might not like how do you, how are we gonna treat them right like what are we gonna do to make right. sure that they actually you know get some get that learning well, you saw that some of the colleges are getting rid of act and sat and stuff like that do you think that that's helpful yeah, that's always been helpful, but that's because those tests are racist, right? Like, I mean, yeah, it's, that's that's one less burden that, that, that those kids have to deal with. But I mean, those tests just had problematic, you know, yeah, issues from the jump. And so I don't I don't see that as a as a as an answer to COVID. Um, oh, okay. It was just something that needed to happen because regardless. Yeah, the tests themselves got problems. <laughs> so. I mean, yeah. I did fairly well on the SAT, but I, I can still say it's very problematic. I know. And you also have a master's in higher education, right? So, I mean, I think that, yeah, definitely your kids will be fine. But like you said, you can also look at it from an educator standpoint and be like, yeah, they're fine. But, like, there's still going to be something missing. And it's unfair. It's, totally it's unfair. And I mean, and, and when I say, like, the other piece of this is beyond the academics is, like, the social emotional well-being of kids, like, what it's like to be isolated and you notice like it just i mean we all understand this now like being socially isolated being in a place where essentially like i, I describe it as groundhog day every day right you wake up and the day pretty much looks the same no matter how different it may seem on your calendar it's pretty much the same day you in the same space looking at the same things essentially doing the same thing like that type of um psychological yeah yeah, that that is real, and like I said, I mean, we've seen that with 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 both my kids. I mean, and my my son is 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 younger, but even in him, but certainly in his sister, who's five, right? Like we have seen the toll that it's taking on her, um, just kind of doing this monotonous stuff time in and time out, and so that's going to be an entire generation of kids who have done this. And even if it is just for six months, seven months or whatever this ends up being, that impact is going, is just going to sit there. Like that is a type of trauma that they're going to have to deal with at some point. And if we're not prepared to help them deal with it, it's just going to persist. Yeah. And so that's why I like leadership in terms of thinking about like, how do we get around this um, as we come out of it? Yeah. It's going to be critical. Absolutely. Well, I don't want to keep you all day, but I do want to talk about, college football so. okay <laughs> so okay lord it's such a complicated situation um all right so to preface this uh college football is broken into multiple conferences there are some conferences that have been like we done for the season like they already said it early on SWAC the HBCUs were like, nope, we're done for the season. They said that early on. We're not going to be playing football. Um, just yesterday, I believe, the Big Ten confirmed that they are not doing a football season right now. They're mm -hmm. hoping that they can do it in the spring. So Big Ten is a big effing conference. So it's kind of like, okay, well, if the Big Ten isn't participating this fall, then how, if you think about it, even if the SEC, which our school's a part of, and you know all the other conferences big 12 and everybody else do stuff that still affects the national championship rankings it still affects everything if there's a whole entire huge conference 
that is not included. So mm -hmm. the, the whole debate is, do you play or do you not? And I totally see both sides of the issue. Because once again, just like with school age kids, not higher education, but school age, you know, there's no real right answer. So yes, some students are going back to school in person, but should they be playing football or even training for basketball? Mm -hmm. eh, I don't know. So there are those people, I'm sure you saw the tweets of the uh, one guy, I, I wrote it down, but I don't feel like trying to find his name, y'all. But there was one uh, football player at University of Kentucky, I believe. I'm going to look. But he, um, he was talking about how he wants to play. He said they like, started a whole hashtag, we want to play. Mm -hmm. And he gave a really I don't 100% agree with what he's saying, but I actually love how he structured this, especially as a college student. He gave, he laid out points about why it would be detrimental to not play. And there are some students, a lot of students actually, that can't go home, you know, mm -hmm. and can't, their, football is their escape. Going away to school is their escape from their neighborhood, from their family, from, their, from a toxic situation, and also a ticket to somewhere else. You know, like they want, they need to play football in order to better themselves and their families. The other side of that is, hell, what are we going to do next year and the year after if they want to enter the draft? So how does that affect the NFL draft now? It's just a whole ripple and domino effect that I totally understand why these kids are like, look, I've been working for this since, since youth league, like since youth football, like you're not about to take this from me. I get it. And it's unfair that they have to go through this. The other side of this is there was a, um, there was a, I actually did copy his, his statement, a black football player who um, he wrote, his name is Kylan Hill. He goes to Mississippi State and he's one of the, a pretty, a pretty big player and a top prospect to get drafted. He said, I don't want to go home for a reason. Everybody home, hometown is not peaceful people. people uh, hometown is not peaceful. People get killed every day and every week in my city. I get it. You know, I understand that. Now, wh whether or not they can actually stay on campus, like, does this mean even if they don't have football, they have to go home? I'm not sure how that's going to work. But then there's, you know, students that are like, I'm not trying to put my life at risk for y'all. Y'all don't even care about my life on a, a what, when there's not a pandemic. Mm -hmm. So they feel like the school and the powers that be are not doing everything in their power to make the situation safe. I believe them. They probably aren't. You know, we see how the NFL in the MLB aren't using all their resources to do the right thing either. Mm -hmm. What is the damn answer? What do we do and whose side are you taking, especially because this is your thing with higher education, you know the ins and outs of the politics of that. What, what is going on? I, well, so what's going on is hard to say. Like I've, I've been following it because I've got some friends who, are, who work in um, athletic departments. Um, and, and at different places around the country. And so I've been paying attention to it somewhat, but I can't say that I'm in too deep. But what I think you basically have is um, a situation where, let's just take the Power Five conferences. So the big conferences, the Big 12, Big 10, um, SEC, ACC, and then the Pac-12. So the Big 10 and the Pac-12 have decided no season. And what it sounds like those university presidents got together and recognized was was a couple things. One, um, we're not sure that up and down the board, 
everybody can meet the same standards. And right. part of the reason everybody can't meet the same standards is because this stuff costs a whole lot of money. So if you want to talk about testing and all that sort of stuff, like people just throw around testing kind of willy nilly as if it's as if it's no big thing. Like, oh, just test people. Yeah, all those tests cost money. Right. Um, so every you single don't think test, they got money <laughs> not all those schools. No, not all them schools got money. Like some of the schools, the big schools absolutely have money, which is why you have schools like Ohio State and Michigan and others who are kind of out front, like, hey, we ready to play. Like we're gonna do it because yeah, yeah. they got money. Um, but you got other schools in there who are like, um, I don't, I don't, I don't know where you expect me to pay this from. Like that's <laughs> just like we don't we ain't got that. And the NCAA um, step in and cover. Huh? The NCAA couldn't come in and be like, we got it. Well, I mean, they they probably could and should chip in to help a lot. But to cover all of those programs, they probably don't even have enough money to do it and still exist. Which, I mean, you know, the NCAA's existence and and why they're there and how much profit is a whole other conversation. (laughs) Like we could we could do that uh, on a different level. And so I think money is a huge part of it. But I do think that there are some schools and school presidents and athletic directors who are also genuinely concerned about like the health and safety. So number one, football is a contact sport. And so if somebody on that field is playing, the likelihood that they could pass it to somebody else, very, very high. Cause you've got, I mean, you, if you just talk about linemen in general, like every single play, they are face to face with another player. Um, And so the idea that somehow they would not be rapidly spreading this is, is just asinine. Like they would absolutely spread it very, very quickly playing the game of football. Um, and so when you think about that and you think about the long-term effects that people are finding with this, because again, a lot of people have made this argument like, oh, they're young, they're healthy, they'll live. Yes, you will live. But if you develop lung issues, breathing exactly. issues, heart issues as a result of it, as we have seen in younger people, mm-hmm. then you are setting yourself up for a situation where that person is um, potentially debilitated long-term in life or may die later as a result of it, particularly if they continue to engage in a high-activity sport like football. Mm-hmm. So they've made the decision to to just, no, we're not going to do that right now <laughs> until we can get to a place where we can. And honestly, in terms of where I come down on it, like that seems like the most reasonable decision um, to me, because while I understand for all those athletes, and there are absolutely athletes who are going to get screwed as a result of this, because there are those handful of athletes who their senior year is the year when they make it and you know they, they had a breakout season and that propels them to get into the NFL or to get drafted and then they go on to have a successful multi-million dollar career in the NFL. Like there are gonna be those athletes who absolutely won't get that chance as a result of COVID. I have, I have, I'm not denying that at all, but this is one of those times where we have to talk about, you know, as, as is often the cliche, like there, there being no I in team, like this can't be about, you know, that handful of individual players. Cause again, the draft is 300 and some odd players. There are 300 and some odd players who get drafted into the NFL every year. And then, you know, a good chunk of those end up getting cut and never make a roster. Yeah, there are literally thousands of tens of thousands of college athletes. When you take all of the conferences together in all sports, you talk about tens of thousands of college athletes. Like, why are we risking all of all of these folks lives for the sake of, you know, a handful of folks who may have the opportunity to make it out? And that is hard. That is a really, really tough thing to say to that young man who may be on the cusp of going out and making all those money, all that money. Um, But 
like I, there's just really no logical justification yeah. for it if we're just going to take it on the facts. Now, where all of this does take me to, and I think the conversation um, has to get to pretty quickly, though, is um, how we compensate athletes, right? Like, mm -hmm. because we out here asking athletes for our own, our own benefit and glorification to come out here and be able to watch football, as well as for the paychecks of these universities to come out here and risk their lives and they ain't really getting paid, right? Like, so... You've always so, <laughs> had that stand. And I think we definitely have always debated that. I never believed in athletes being paid. I, I just never believed it. I don't agree with it. I'm slowly coming around. <laughs> Look, <laughs> if, they finna say, if they finna say you got to come out here and play football, that tells me that you are an essential employee. And employees okay. get paid, right? Like, so, like, what are we talking about in terms okay, of companies? What if they have, they have scholarships? Most of them do. Is yeah, that most, most, many of them do. Not all, many of them do. But the thing is, like, here's why I've always rejected the scholarship argument. is because me being in school is is what I have to do to get in, in order to play, right? Like, it ain't like I can just I can just sit at home and then show up on Saturday and come play football. I have to be in school. It's a requirement. And so you need me to have a scholarship because otherwise I wouldn't be here, right? Like, so it's a necessity type of thing. You ain't giving me anything. Essentially, that is my pass in. Otherwise, like, I, I couldn't be here anyway. And so the idea that, oh, oh, we, we give you a scholarship, like, that's 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 what you needed me to have in order for me to be here to play for you. So like that's not a that's not something you've gifted me. That it benefits you as much as it benefits me. And it only benefits yeah. me as if I'm able to access all of the things that come with being a student, which we know very well a lot of our football friends did not have full access to everything that the collegiate experience offers. We yeah. know that firsthand. There are a whole bunch of them boys who had absolutely no idea what else was happening on campus. And that was by design. Um, yeah. Not to mention they just the academic in, part of it. Yeah, they stayed in one specific dorm room, Kane Hall, and or dorm building. They weren't even allowed to like come to parties. You know, like it was just so segregated. Right. So, yeah. So I'm just, look, I'm, I just, I think that for me is going to be the bigger conversation in this yeah. is how does student athlete voice that, and grow? But isn't that becoming the conversation? Because I was watching, I have to watch first take every now and then just to know what's happening. You know, I'm not the like, let me tune in sports girl, but I'm trying to keep up. So Stephen A was talking about something, something about how, um, he feels like that's why the conversation took a turn is because student athletes started saying, oh, oh, you want us to come back and play? Pay me. And I think that they start to feel that pressure and it started to make a lot more sense to the masses. So mm -hmm. that's when they just said, we're going to stop talking to students and just make them come back and kind of just pivot the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that that's kind of what's happening? Because that conversation is definitely happening again. Oh, I absolutely think like, cause what the Pac-12 has done in terms of those athletes getting together and banding together and even the Big Ten, um, and they don't seem as unified as the Pac-12 students are. Uh, but the fact that students are starting to get together and recognize that they have power. Right. Like, that's going, that's, that's the end of this whole thing, yeah. right? Like, well, one of them you know, um, was saying that he wants to form the first, the first football player I was talking about, he was saying he wants to form a players association, just mm -hmm. like the NFL has. I'm not opposed to that. I'm never opposed to people joining together. Um, of course, they're going to be pissed about that. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's, 
I don't know. Well, I guess my last question about that is, is there any way, kind of like with middle school and grammar school and high school, is there any way that the Urban League can help with students, especially like University of Kentucky, Kentucky State, places like that, help these students that say, I don't know what's going to happen at those universities when it comes to whether or not they're going to be allowed to stay on campus if they're not playing football. Um, mm -hmm. Like, are they, do they have special dorms or I, I don't know. I don't know the housing situation or even the stipend and money situation. I have no idea. Like how are you mm -hmm. going to eat? If you don't have your scholarship is not applying this year, then mm -hmm. do you still get the benefits of the scholarship this year? I don't know. So is there any way that they can receive assistance in some way or help in some way, um, whether it's financial or guidance, um, anything that certain students of a social, socioeconomic status that need that type of help, can they come to somebody like you guys? Yeah, and we've helped some students already this year who are going back and who need assistance. Um, and there are other organizations who that is their focus is helping college students um, kind of stay afloat. Um, and so yes, so they certainly can can seek out the Urban League and we can contact them. Um, either we can either help them directly or we can put them in contact with others who can. But I'll tell you the first place that I always double back to is we always go back to the college because right. this was the other thing that we, you know, you and I learned being connected as we were is like, it's pockets of money sitting yeah. around campus all the time right oh, like that, yeah. that just just don't go just don't get access you yeah. know that that just to help students to be able to do a little bit here pay rent there do that sort of stuff and so schools have to do a better job of making those things more clear mm -hmm. um and more accessible for a lot of their students but that is when we whenever we particularly when we get college students we always say like all right let's let's call your school and let's let's go and shake some trees and figure out what's going to fall out there yeah. because they already have resources um that they should be deploying to help you and you shouldn't have to come you know all the way back home to louisville you know if you're not in town um to try to figure out like how you're going to get assistance because we know that these universities are set up to help um students in those types of situations and so we do our best to connect them to to the resources at their institution but then after that we absolutely um step in and do what we can to help kids succeed love it love it so there you go guys if you have kids that are in college or um you know you're in college i don't know now you know where to go get your resources and get your help and where to start um all right last question how do we feel about the new VP nominee, um, Kamala Harris. How do we how do we think this presidential election is going to play out? How are we going to prevent voter suppression in that way as well? What are your last thought feelings on this? So, all right. So we talked a little bit about the voter suppression issue. I think we just got to make sure that at every state level and municipality that we are that we are beating the drum, that we are ringing the bell anywhere that suppression is popping up, and that we are making that as publicly as human, humanly possible. I think yes. all the organizations on the ground need to be doing their best to get voters to turn out. Like turnout is going to be the critical part right. to this, and so we've got to have folks turn out. I know folks are, you know disaffected some folks are just not satisfied but folks have to turn out um and exercise their right and they need to do so not just because you know of how you feel about the person in the white house but honestly one of the things that is is been i think picked up in me has been this idea of and i think i mean i certainly i think john lewis's passing just kind of triggered it because i learned a lot more about the the push to vote um 
than I already knew. And I knew a little bit, but I learned a lot more just in reading things after, after he passed. And, and there's just too much legacy in this, right? Like there are too many people who have done too much um, for us to, to sit at home. And, that, yeah. and, and that's just, and that, that for me is just the big piece on that. Now, to turn into to our dear sister Kamala, um, <laughs> look, I, I, I am waiting on, on all of the flood of think pieces to come. Uh, oh, in oh, terms they of, literally an hour later. Like, I mean, like it's, it's, it's going to be amazing, but here's where I am. Like, I will not stand for anybody who's going, who's going to question a, her blackness yes. or her authenticity um, or her womanhood or her black womanhood yeah. in any of this, right? And so all of those things, I will absolutely stand up, applaud, and celebrate all day long, right? Because that is important, that is significant, and that is an achievement that we, that we absolutely deserve, that black women absolutely deserve, that our country deserves, and I will honor that every day, all day. Love it. Now, the reality is, is we're going to have to see from a policy position where she stands up. And there are a lot of folks in California who got who got their own issues with her and, and, right. and her past. And I think some of that is absolutely valid. But what we're not going to do is somehow examine her under a microscope that we ain't finna put everybody else on, right. right? Like that ain't, that that is something that I think happened in the primary um, that I think was just complete bullshit, right? Like I think we decided that we were going to treat her differently than we're going to treat everybody else on that stage. Um, and that and that is true of black people as much as it was the media and everybody else. Um, and I would say that was true of the women first and foremost, but certainly her as a black woman um, got an extra layer of scrutiny that nobody else got. Okay. And so we ain't finna do that sort of thing, right? Like we can have an honest intellectual conversation about what's good, what's bad, but we ain't finna just be dismissing folks on nonsense and on some BS that we're not willing to hold or some BS standards that we're not willing to hold everybody else to. And so that is where I am. I am still figuring out, um, you know, where I, from a political sense, you know, how much I'm ready to get down and get ready to rock with with her, but um, I'm not, you know, I, ain't, I I'm certainly not a not a not a flamethrower on this. I'm not finna be. I'm not mad. I'm not. I'm not pissed. Yeah, like yeah. I said, I'm gonna celebrate what there is to celebrate on it, yeah. and then I'm gonna work. And most importantly, I'm gonna work to push her in whatever ways I can um, towards the policies and positions that I feel like our community needs. Right, and that's Absolutely. where we all have to be. Is like we got who we got. Um, whoever that may be, um, we have to make an effort and put in the energy to see if we can get them. And just like Barack Obama did, like he came in with a couple of um, stances that I actually didn't even agree with. But throughout his time, throughout his both of his terms, he pivoted on a couple mm -hmm. of big issues from gay marriage to um, the way small businesses are treated and bailouts and things like that. He pivoted on certain things. It is possible to evolve. She's a 55-year-old woman. She ain't 95 and stuck in her ways. Like, it's not that serious, you know? Yes. So I love that you said that, that it's about electing the person who is a leader. And leader does not mean you're set in your ways and you're a dictator. It mm -hmm. means you are able to open yourself and hear and listen and comprehend and evolve. Mm -hmm. And that's not something that I'm seeing right now in this administration. So that's what I want. 
I don't want a perfect person because one does not exist. So yeah, I think if anybody was going to listen and, and pivot and evolve on certain topics, which she actually already has, then yeah, even of course, even over the primary, she she right. moved on certain things, and so it's like I'm willing to allow people to grow and to change. Like that's just kind of my general ethos. Like I believe that people can change, um, generally speaking, and so like let's let's give her this room and the space to do that. Let's do that for for Uncle Joe as well. Now, granted, you know maybe a little harder, but yeah. you know let's let's see. Um, yeah. Folks can move in different places, and and ultimately we can get to some poly position, policy positions that we can all agree on, so. Perfect. Um, okay, what is voting day? Um, what are the deadlines for mail-in voting in Kentucky? Ooh, so mail-in voting, I don't know yet. They haven't released the official timeline for that okay. yet. Um, last day to register in Kentucky is October 5th. Okay. Um, and so if you need to register, um, please do. We had our governor, our newly elected governor, um, uh, restored the rights of over 140,000 felons, um, which is huge, which means they can now vote. And so we at the Louisville Urban League are actively seeking to reach out to those individuals to make sure that they know that that happened. A question, was that already put into action? Because I've heard both things. I've heard that she, it's a, it's a woman, right? It's a man. Oh, it's a man? Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of a different state. Because what was Kentucky though? Um, that that they said yes, I will do this, but they, there's no specific set date on when it will actually go into action. No, that happened. So it's done. Okay. It happened. It happened this last last year, um, okay. and so it went into effect. And so we're we're trying to reach out to contact folks to let them know, like, hey, you can vote. Um, you know, let us help you get registered, all that sort of stuff. Um, and that's true in a lot of different states. And so, you know, we're really pushing registration. That's a big deal. But again, the, the real big thing is going to be turnout. Like we need okay. folks to turn out and show up at the polls. Um, okay. And I know generally speaking, um, we're working with Michelle Obama's When We All Vote. We're one of the media partners for that organization. Sure. And one thing that they are pushing, we are pushing, is that October 13th or so, just having that in your head as an election day and mm -hmm. trying to aim to have your mail-in ballot mailed off by then because we see the foolishness happening the foolishness. with the post office. Absolutely. Just thinking that in your head, October 13th, around that time, trying to mail it off so there are no excuses uh, yes. for it to get there in time. So. Yes, and if you have early voting in your state, go you vote in person, go vote yeah. early. You'll probably be able to do it safely and social distance and all that sort of stuff because we're going to also be pushing that. It's like, get out and go vote, get it taken right. care of weeks in advance. That way you don't have to worry about it on election day. Right. Um, you know, because some folks are just like, I ain't fooling with no paper ballot. That's fine. I get it. That's yeah, fine. Yeah. But also the reason for early voting, though, is because what we did see in the primary um, where there were some challenges to some people's ability to vote because they had them registered wrong or wrong precinct or had them wrong party affiliation, that sort of stuff. So if there is an issue with your with your voter registration, if you go and vote early, that gives you some time to get that sorted out so that you can vote and your vote will be counted. So please, 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 folks, vote early if you have the opportunity to do so. Love it. Love it. Okay. Any last words for um, what the what the Louisville Urban League wants the world to know? Oh, that's real big. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, look, 
I will say this. Um, you can see in my background, like justice for Breonna Taylor, like that is paramount. Um, we are pushing that. And that is absolutely first and foremost, um, firing all of the officers who are responsible for her death and then arresting them um, and putting them through the process as it should be. Um, but it's bigger than that, right? Because yeah. Breonna, Taylor, Breonna Taylor's death is emblematic of all of the other systematic problems that we have in this community and that we see across the nation. And so we at the Louisville Urban League are pushing for justice in every, in every area, jobs, justice, education, health, and housing. Like we wanna see justice all over the place. We wanna see racial justice. We wanna see racial equity. Um, we want our community to thrive. We wanna be able to build wealth um, and live free uh finally <laughs> in this country and so uh, if folks want to support us um they can they can find out information lul.org um to learn more about the urban league or um the national urban league movement um you can look up information on national urban league as well they just released their state of black america report today um our ceo participated in that as a virtual event so we encourage folks to check that out they're talking about some real powerful it. stuff there as well oh i love it all right we learned so much today. Yay. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and if Daniel Cameron does not do his job, I mean, what? What? Look, what? Dan Cameron got a got a list a mile long of folks who have said they're gonna show up in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, so I, 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 we are going to be cautiously optimistic that he. You're way more optimistic than me. Yeah, I mean, I'm just look, like, what's the next step? I don't trust it. What's the next I mean, step? Look, I live here, so I got to be cautiously <laughs> so because there's no telling what what how that goes down. Um, right. Things don't happen. All right, well, we're all going to try to be more cautiously optimistic as well. Thank you so much for doing this. It was so informative, Absolutely. and like honestly, like I love seeing things come full circle. Yes. I think. I don't know. It just the universe. It just makes sense, you know. Universe, absolutely. Because I remember you crashing this thing out over a laptop. <laughs> Wait, no, you're um, right. You yeah. are right. I actually started it during a certain time, and you were right there next to me. That's right. I and recall. you helped me. So thank you. Hey, I mean, what? This is what? Fifteen years past Katrina. You should. You you have your anniversaries. <laughs> Because this all happened right around that same time. We had an anniversary like situation gonna happen, but then COVID, you know? So, um, yeah, I don't know about that anymore. But <laughs> yeah, it's our 15 year anniversary this year. Um, it happened, actually was in June, around June. So, well, yeah. Shoot. Well, it is amazing to see what this empire has become. <laughs> so, what a law school dropout has become. <laughs> Hey, look, now you, I, I will tell you this, you need to make sure you out here telling that story, right? Because that is, it is a remarkable story of, of perseverance and, and overcoming obstacles, um, but also just commitment to like an idea. Because again, I remember when it was <laughs> a random ass idea. Very random. <laughs> like, why don't we do this? Because there's all white people over here doing this. Yeah, <laughs> and, so, I said. and also, I'm not going to go back to law school because I damn near failing out anyway. They're going to take my my scholarship and they want me to come back and pay for it? No, right. I'm going to just blog. And you were right there like, I mean, okay. 
I guess, what you need help with, you know? And you definitely helped me out and you were not, I mean, you weren't super judgmental, but I'm sure you were side-eyeing me, I'm sure. <laughs> not judgmental, but you know, that was just the space. You was like, we finna talk about this gossip. And I was like, okay, I, that's, that's cool. That's, I guess that's a thing. Like you knew, you knew it though. Cause, who, cause what, it was only like, like two other people who were really in that space exactly. dominating it. Exactly. And so when you said like, yeah, look at these folks, I was like, Mm, all right. <laughs> both white. And you're like, mm, I don't know. I don't know how that's going to work. But happen. let's do this. Yeah. And you did, right? And you did. And so that is absolutely amazing. So, again, just many congrats to you. Absolutely proud um, to be able to share space um, and time with you and to be able to understand and see this journey where it is. And I know it's going to keep going like, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, the benefit of, you know, COVID ain't going to mess with the online platform too much. So Not too know. much. Thankfully, people still want their entertainment news. And, you know, now that we're doing politics as well, that ain't going away. So, mm-hmm. so yeah. awesome stuff. Um, but, yeah, thanks for having me on. Thanks for repping Louisville. Like, I mean, that's, that's huge to be able to get the city and Brianna's name, um, yeah. you know, just keep it, keep it alive and, and moving. Yeah. I really appreciate that. It's a big effing deal. And we want to talk Absolutely. about it. So thank you. And we okay. will be talking soon. Y'all know the deal. Like, comment, subscribe on YouTube if you're watching on YouTube. Apple, iHeart, Spotify. We on all the platforms. Get your life together and click, click, click. Like, comment, subscribe. Thank y'all so much for tuning in and listening and watching. I hope you learned a lot. Visit theybf.com as always. And thank y'all for listening and watching. Bye.